This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Let's bring in our team, make some analysis and some thoughts uh, on that latest Fed decision. Kathleen Hayes, Global Economics and Policy Editor at Bloomberg News, right next to me in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, and along with us is Dave Wilson, Stocks Editor at Bloomberg News, also in our New York studio. Kathleen, let's start with you. Widely expected. Uh, we got uh, Fed lowering its uh, interest rates by a quarter of a point, also lowering its rate on overnight reverse repos by 30 mm-hmm. basis points. Uh, as somebody said, not an enormous surprise for the markets, bonds in the dollar move more than stocks, but there is no fireworks to report yet. And that may come from Jay Powell's press conference. What stands out for you? Well, that this is basically what was expected. I think anybody who was previewing the Fed on radio or television in the last 24 hours was saying, yes, 25 basis point cut baked in the cake. Uh, The dissents by Esther George, president of the Kansas City Fed, Eric Rosengren, president of the Boston Fed, dissenting because they don't think a rate cut is needed. Exactly what happened in July. Also, it seemed to me and many others that Jim Bullard, he recently argued for a 50 basis point rate cut. He dissented in favor of that. Uh, the Cutting the interest on excess reserves will put more reserves into the system because the banks will have less incentive to put their reserves at the Fed, the lower the rate is. And, they hold, and people also right. were looking for something 10 to 15, maybe the 30 basis points. So that should then take pressure off the repo rate. It should help keep the effective funds rate where the Fed wants it. Again, that was pretty much expected. I don't, And that's this is now the fourth time they've been doing this since about the last year and a half. Mm-hmm. And this was also a much bigger move. In the past, when they've tweaked that, when they've lowered the interest rate on excess reserves to make sure it stays below the Fed, funds rate and puts the reserves in to keep the effective funds rate from getting too high. It's only been like a five basis point move, five or 10. So this is a more aggressive move. And surely Jay Powell is going to get so asked so many questions about this starting about a half an hour from now. What about the Fed dot plot? Because I'm looking at it uh, in terms of what we might see, because I think that was also very key, right? We got an update on this and what the expectations are, because I feel like the market expectations are pretty aggressive for more rate cuts uh, to come. So it looks like for 2019, 1.875%. Um, the prior was 2.375%. Uh, 2020, uh, same number. Prior was above that. So it looks like uh, reining it in, pulling them in. But you tell me in terms of your I'm trying analysis. to kick, I'm trying to read really quickly and get a better look at the dot plots themselves because it seems to me that there there may be a little more uh, generous move here. But um, it's just, this is one of the most important parts. The... Um, Boy, oh boy, oh boy. Well, that's okay. Check that out because in the meantime, I want to take a look at the equity markets because we did see equity losses steepen uh, initially. We're bouncing back off those lows, but uh, S&P was down about 8 heading into the Fed decision, now down about 12. DAO was off about 58 points, now down about 86 points. And the NASDAQ was uh, showing about a loss of 44 going into that uh, Fed uh, rate decision. It's now down mm, about 58 points, but it did dip even lower, Dave. So we did see an initial reaction. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've seen some volatility, really the S&P 500 kind of bouncing around a bit, though. It's been settled in at lower levels, roughly where it was before the decision came out. 
And why would the reaction be what it is? Probably as much as anything, because, you know, there seems to be a split among yeah. the, you know, Fed governors about what do you do from here? And, and the need for more easing. Absolutely. Exactly. And that really becomes the question, because, you know, you've got people in the markets looking for multiple rate cuts, and we've had two of them, but... You know, that they're anticipating that, you know, we'll possibly get two more or three more, depending mm -mm. on who you pay attention to. So I just really, wanna, it's, it's that that kind of jumps out. Coming off our news desk here, uh, no surprising on the main action, but the dot plot of rate forecast, just to kind of layer on what Dave just said, is somewhat hawkish, showing a split mm -hmm. over the need for more easing, not just in 2019, but in coming years. Seven officials see an end uh, 2019 funds rate of 1.625% with five at 1.875%, five at 2.125%. Uh, None see the rate going below 1.625% uh, through yeah. 2022. What's a lot of numbers I just threw in. Yeah, I think what is the, the significance? First of all, this is what people expected, that you might get what they would call a hawkish cut because if there's not a big move towards, yes, we do need uh, two or three more rate cuts this year, we need more next year, and you're right, we're not really seeing that. But it looks to me like actually for 2019, you now have... You still have, what, uh, about five who don't see any more cuts. Yeah. And then you have five holding steady, and then you still have about seven who are looking for uh, another cut or so. And then um, there's just a division on the committee, right. certainly this year and next year. And I, can I can only imagine the heated debate, right, going back and forth well, right now. Well, and as someone, a former Fed official was telling me in the last 24 hours, you know, and when a heated debate just means you very calmly state your case, <laughs> voices don't raise, but he they too don't throw was saying. at the FOMC and, do that. And look at this, a big difference. First of all, look at the recent data. The mm -hmm. recent data has not been super weak. Right, you've still got very weak investment. You still got trade war concerns. Manufacturing ISM did flow Paul below fifty, so signaling contraction for the first thing. the highest since two thousand seven. We got that data. Today. That that came out today. So I think that for for the, it's it bolstered the case for wait and see. We're making a cut. Let's see what happens next. And one more thing, let me say quickly because I want to hear what Dave thinks about this too. The dots are a snapshot of a point in time. If there's a big shift in the economy, stronger or weaker. At the next time they update the summary of economic projections right. in January, you could see a very different view of where they think rates are heading. They will tell you this is not a it's not a forecast. It's based on my view of the economy now. This is what I think rates should be. But that, too, could change. Well, and I just want to point out that the FOMC reiterating, we've heard this before, that it will, quote, act as appropriate to sustain the expansion. Uh, this statement containing minimal changes... Uh, and they have said that uh, mainly they noted household spending gains have been strong, while business fixed investment and exports have weakened. Uh, the mention of exports is new. There's a more explicit nod to trade tensions weighing on growth, which really mirrors, right, Dave, what we got from Federal Express. I feel like that was kind mm -hmm. of a wake-up call to everybody, that yeah. stock taking a hit after its latest earnings and blaming trade. Absolutely, and uh, not only trade, but also just a general slowing that mm -hmm. they're seeing, not just you know in a broad sense, but... You know, specifically since June when they last made a forecast. So, you know, it's something that it's definitely creeping up on people in a sense. In FedEx, you're looking at the biggest drop in the stock potentially since 2008. So it just goes to show you, you know, how much 
the outlook has really kind of uh, raised questions about where this company is headed. Having said that, Dave, we know that let's say we get some resolution, although the conversations we've had around this table in our studio is that <laughs> don't necessarily expect some kind of big resolution. Our own Andy Brown of the uh, Bloomberg New Economy team, editor there, um, you know, saying that we might see some little tweaks just to kind of get past it. But any kind of, you know, calmness to that could certainly change the outlook when it comes to corporations. Uh, potentially in terms of either spending on things or maybe feeling more calm or calmer about the global economy? Well, there's no doubt trade is a wild card. That said, I mean, you've gotten some indications that companies are at the very least waiting for things to shake out before they're willing to move on things like business investment. You know, we we had a chart out yesterday, which I put on my Twitter feed, just making that point that, you know, with with the investment not being there, it's a concern that, you know, you have to focus on in terms of where the economy's going. I think think that's also interesting that, um, again, look, following our our market live blog, et cetera, pointing out that, you know, five officials see no need for no, no more, no rate cuts at all. Five want to see basically one over the rest of the year and seven want to see two. Now, remember, we focus a lot on the voters, right? And the, the, and that's right now Esther George, Eric Rosengren, and Jim Bullard, and they're voting till the end of the year. New York Fed President John Williams always votes. Then we got the Board of Governors. Because, but when they count the dots, it's mm-hmm. everybody. So when you're looking at people who want more rate cuts than the, than the guys who don't want any at all, you probably, put, bo- you probably have yeah. Neil Kashkari in that group. Who knows? You've got maybe, maybe you have Jay Powell there. Right. There's no way of knowing. I'll leave that to Bloomberg Economics, those guys to sort it out. You need to look at the voting members, right? But, but you have to look at voting members. But remember, it's not just Fed Bank presidents. It's also it's Rich Clarida, the vice chair. It's Jay Powell, the chair. It's uh, Lel Brainerd on the board of governors. It's so many people. So if there's that many that still, to me it seems so many that still think there's going to be a need for a couple more rate cuts, you may have some heavy hitters in there. All right. Interesting. So, you know, I do wonder kind of where we go from here and what should be uh, the line of questioning Watch the data. when it comes to Jay Powell. Watch the data or Jay Powell. <laughs> why your board is, very, you know, the FOMC is very divided. Where are you? Try to ferret out where the Fed chair himself is. That's one thing I'd want to know. Right. Um, what, how are you weighing the risks of the trade war continuing? Oh, by the way, Hong Kong, all the geopolitical risks. How does that affect you in terms of your sense of where you want to go? Um, and again, of course, this, he's going to get tons of questions about the repo rate. And if adjusting the interest on excess reserves, the IEOR, is enough, and mm-hmm. are you going to put your standing repo facility that's been t- discussed so long in place? And do you agree with people who say <laughs> you got to do a little QE light to get some more reserves in there? You know, he likes to wrap up those press conferences. Uh, he's pretty <laughs> quick with them, and I do wonder if it'll go on longer. Dave Wilson, come on in on it, because I do wonder what this means in terms of equity plays. We've talked about momentum. We've talked about defensive. We've talked about cyclicals. Bank stocks getting a little bit of a lift here uh, on this news, on the expectations that maybe Maybe rates won't be cut so much, and that's good for them. Uh, But tell me, you know, how this might affect the trade. Well, I mean, you're right to focus on the banks because, let's face it, you know, when you think about the way that interest rates have been coming down, in fact, with the yield curve going negative, and still negative, by the way, when you look at, you know, the midpoint of the uh, Fed funds target relative to even the 10-year Treasury yield, which is at one and three-quarters percent pretty Mm -hmm. much as we speak, You know, I mean, the banks have to work through the issues in terms of their profitability. You know, net interest margins, that gap between what they're paying depositors and what they're earning on their loans and investments. You can talk about housing peaking up. 
Uh, but if the money isn't there in terms of what banks can earn from their mortgages, I mean, that becomes an issue for their profitability down the line. So what's happening on the rate front, uh, really front and center for the banks. And I just want to mention our Bloomberg Live blog, uh, our whole team on it, and they're saying it doesn't seem like there's any real worry about a slowdown on, a slowdown on the economic horizon by the members of the FOMC. Well, they're not seeing it yet. It's coming through on the domestic side, so they're concerned mm-hmm. about the global side. But there has been a bit of a move in bond yields on this, right? Yeah. Not a big move, a but the 10-year yield was at 1.74. It's at 1.75. Um, and I think we've had a bit of move in the short end. So anyway, it's not yeah. a big big difference, but certainly um, people are waiting, waiting here for Jay Powell. Two-year was 166, now at 169. All right, Kathleen Hayes, you guys are the best. Global economics and policy editor at Bloomberg News. Dave Wilson, he's going to be back a little bit later on. Stocks editor at Bloomberg News. Yes, indeed. No surprise. Uh, Today's Fed decision, the Fed uh, lowering interest rates as widely expected by a quarter of a point. But some concerns that maybe the Fed won't be uh, as uh, dovish, if you will, in the future when it comes to uh, lowering rates again later on this year, maybe into next year. So let's get into it and let's get into market reaction. Ira Jersey is with us, Bloomberg Intelligence Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist. He joins us on the phone from BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. Also with us is Steve Skanky. He is former White House National Security Council staff member, currently Chief Economic Advisor at Keel Point, based in Washington, D.C., in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio in New York. Um, I want to start with you, uh, Steve. Tell me uh, your thoughts, widely expected in terms of uh, the rate cut. What stands out for you in this decision? The rate cut was so baked in, it would have been impossible for them not to do it. Right. Uh, even with the uh, the articulated uh, reluctance on the part of many uh, to cut it all, some uh, uh, two actually dissented on it. Uh, there were a couple that wanted to cut more. Uh, but uh, it was hard with what the markets were expecting not to cut, even though the recent economic news, as recently as housing starts this morning. We talked uh, about it at the top of our broadcast. Yeah, such a positive rebound. Uh, the uh, the job quit rate uh, up again, too, uh, expressing confidence uh, in labor markets and among consumers. Uh, uh, I think they just got boxed in and didn't know what else to do. All right, we're going to dig down a little bit deeper. Ira, come on in on though. What you've seen uh, since the uh, statement has come out, and of course we're waiting for Jay Powell, which we will take live in about uh, 12 minutes. We'll head to the Federal Reserve. But what stands out for you, Ira? Yeah, not, not a huge market reaction in the rates markets. I, I think the, the thing that people were looking for in the rates markets was after the volatility in the repurchase agreement market, um, they were thinking that maybe there would be some statement about either a, a modest expansion of the balance sheet, so reserves didn't continue to fall as they have been even after quantitative tightenings ended, or some kind of uh, repo facility like a standing repo facility that would uh, uh, inject reserves whenever they were needed. And y- you didn't get either of those things. So I think that's something that uh, Jay Powell will be asked in the press conference coming up. And, and I think that's going to be probably far more interesting than the statement was, quite frankly. Yeah, I kind of can't wait for the press conference. And I think it's interesting that you know we had an st- earlier story that Jeff Goodlock of uh, double line, you know, say, uh, saying that we could get from the Fed kind of a QE light, you know, possibly. Steve, come on back in here because I do find it fascinating that heading into this, and I feel like over the last month or so, especially when we saw the sell-off on the equity side of things in August, concerns about trade, that people were thinking, well, maybe we get a half a point cut. How have we seen, or how has it been possible that we've gotten such a disconnect between some of the data points that are out there and the expectations uh, for the Federal Reserve? 
it's uh, really an interesting phenomenon that we see that uh, because the uh, the data points don't really argue for a cut. Uh, and interestingly, if you look back six weeks ago, uh, the S&P and the Dow were basically six weeks ago before the July meeting exactly where they were on Monday. Correct. And even oil prices with uh, the machinations were about the same. Um, and recall that after the uh, July 31st announcement, the market sold off a little bit. The next morning they rebounded. And then the president uh, made his dramatic announcement about uh, further tariffs, uh, which, of course, uh, were problematic for the markets. Uh, Are you concerned that Jay Powell is feeling pressure because the market was expecting it? I mean, you know, what is the role of the chairman of the Federal Reserve? We know about the mandate, the dual mandate. I mean, but what is the responsibility to kind of, you know, remove yourself from the noise that's out there, whether it's the presidential tweets or the pressure from investors, and just kind of do the right thing? Well, Do you think, Jay? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that, that certainly is his responsibility, Carol. But uh, but I think that uh, he's been a little bit overwhelmed by the pressure, uh, not only from the president, which I think he's been pretty good at resisting, but uh, particularly from the markets. And with all the things that are going on, you know, the weakness in China, the the continuing problems in Europe, uh, the, the incident in in Saudi Arabia, which is which is mm-hmm. probably not a big deal. But it just increases the fragility or the perceived fragility of the markets and their inability to absorb bad news. Uh, and uh, uh, so here we are. We uh, we get the cut. I think he felt that he needed to do it because the markets expected it. Right. Even though perhaps even he doesn't believe that a, a real cut is needed. Right. You know, I think I think one of the things that that we have to remember here is that a lot of the data that we're saying that is good, it's really services sector data. The manufacturing sector continues to slow. So when you look at things like ISM new orders, you know that's below 50. That's a sign potentially of contraction in the manufacturing sector. And even though it's a relatively small part of the U.S. economy now, it's an important part of the economy that can feed through to all of the other sectors of the economy and can be a real worry. And you know, the market, even though the market's pricing these things, one of the reasons is um, the market tends to follow things like manufacturing new orders. And um, and, and because of that, you, you really, I think the Fed wants to see a turnaround, at least the doves on the Fed, want to see a turnaround in some of the, the kind of forward-looking data before they think about, uh, you know, stopping the easing cycle. Well, Ira, how are folks on Wall Street, uh, you know, in the world of fixed income and fixed rates and, and the rate uh, environment kind of rethinking some of their formulas going forward because of what we got so far today. Well, yeah, I think rethinking the formulas, we've been trying to do that for a couple of years now because we, we are in <laughs> sure. a different environment when it comes to, you know, inflation and growth. And, you know, he'll be asked again, I'm sure Jay Powell will be asked about the Phillips curve again and whether or not it still exists. That's the relationship between inflation and, and employment and why we haven't seen a significant uptick in inflation. And in fact, since the last meeting, the inflation expectations uh, baked into the Treasury Inflation Protected Security or the TIPS market has actually come down about 30 basis points because of some of the global angst that have been going on, and, and as well as a little bit lower oil prices until very recently. So, you know, and they didn't change that part of their, their statement, um, which I had anticipated them noting a little bit that, uh, that inflation measures had come down a little bit. Instead, they just say inflation compensation has remained low. 
Steve, you know, I'm curious too about what your expectations are about kind of where we are in this economic cycle. I feel like it's been a guessing game for many years now at this point. Uh, there was a survey out, uh, I believe it was by Duke, and half of the CFOs in a survey see a U.S. recession within a year. Um, where are we on that possibility? Because uh, Jason and my co-host uh, and I recently caught up with James Gorman over at Morgan Stanley and said, you know, look at something like Australia. That economic cycle has gone on for a long time. There's no necessarily any reason why we can't kind of continue uh, as we have uh, over the last couple of years. What's your take on that? Carol, I think the, uh, the big question will be, what does the president do on a trade deal? Right now, the uncertainty that's in the market about where tariffs and trade matters are probably overwhelms everything else. Uh, and the Fed really can't counteract that with uh, a quarter or a half a point cut. Uh, and and we, we've seen that uh, along the way. Uh, and there are positives and negatives, and I agree with what Ira said, but uh, but just looking at consumer confidence, consumer sentiment, uh, small business optimism index, the continuing spending within small business are real drivers of, of what's going on in the economy. So it's hard to see what would trigger a recession in the next 12 months, notwithstanding the, the Duke survey that was uh, – pretty interesting. Uh, there's just so much strength mm-hmm. that there'd have to be an external event uh, like a major trade war or a big disruption uh, right. that would uh, push the economy toward recession. Otherwise, it's hard to see how we, we don't get through 2020 with the economy in good stead. I, you agree? Go ahead. Yeah, I actually agree with that sentiment. And I think one of the reasons why a lot of people are thinking there's a recession is is basically twofold. One is that, you know, we've just, it's been so long since we had a recession and people aren't used to, you know, having much more than a decade. But time is not a variable that recessions necessarily need to care about. And number two is I, I think people look at some market indicators like an inverted three-month, 10-year yield curve and say, oh, that's been a recession indicator. But it, that's a poor recession indicator, in my opinion, because it's really, you know, the market's forward expectations of where that's going that matter. Now, and I think ironically, um, that may, might not be the same kind of indicator as it's been in the past, primarily because as with interest rates so low and with the Federal Reserve easing interest rates, at some point, if interest rates get to zero again, the market's going to anticipate more quantitative easing. And mm-hmm. because they expect more quantitative easing, curves will remain flatter than they would otherwise be. All right. I just want to remind everybody of the big news at this hour. Of course, the Fed meeting uh, coming out with their rate decision uh, at the top of the hour. Federal Reserve policymakers lowering their main interest rate for a second time this year while splitting over the need for further easing. They're kind of caught between the uncertainty over trade and global growth and also a domestic economy. As you've been hearing from both Ira and uh, Steve, that is holding up well. So what does it mean for the markets? We have seen a deepening when it comes to the equity sell-off. Right now, the S&P is down just about 22 points. Dow Jones Industrial Average. We're looking at a loss of about 164 points. It was down just about 60 prior to the Fed decision. And the NASDAQ, which was off 44 before uh, the rate decision, now down about 84 points. In terms of uh, the fixed income market, let's get an update um, there because we have seen a little bit of an uptick in yields. Ten-year note right now with the yield of 176. uh, The five-year note yielding 163. And the two-year note with the yield of 171. Steve, Uh, The press conference, we're getting ready to head to D.C. and listen to Jay Powell. What would you ask him? I would would ask him if he can give us forward guidance on where they're going to keep rates rather than continuing to cut. You know, the Fed used forward guidance very effectively in the past, uh, and they haven't done it recently except to say that uh, we will follow the data. And the following the data issue is so complicated because the – 
uh, the, the market really doesn't know what data they're following anymore and uh, what makes a difference and what doesn't. So uh, to hear the chairman uh, uh, speak as to that, I think, would be really helpful. And I would certainly ask him that question if I were in the room. I want to ask you, too, just if I may follow, because you're at the intersection of Washington and markets. We just had uh, President Trump tweet, and here's the tweet. Jay Powell and the Federal Reserve fail again. No guts, no sense, no vision, a terrible communicator. Um, Steve, he's wrong? Well, the chairman of the Federal Reserve hasn't exhibited the communication skills that some of his predecessors have, and that's been challenging for the market when they're hanging on every word. Uh, he's a very bright and skilled leader at the Federal Reserve. But uh, when you look at the deft that uh, Janet Yellen and Ben Bernanke had in really saying a lot but not much, mm-hmm. uh, it, it left the market guessing just enough that uh, they were really quite happy with what they did. Uh, I think Chairman Powell has... Uh, Uh, had the disadvantage of maybe being a little bit too specific as to what he says and what he means. All right. And Ira, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think that the president likes Jim Jim Bullard because he dissented and wanted 50 basis points. And he uh, I'm I'm not sure. I think that the president is not acting rationally. Like if he wanted lower interest rates, the Fed's delivering that. It's just maybe not at the pace that he had hoped. I mean, it's, you know, the Fed's job, the Fed tends to move incrementally. The only time that really they move very quickly and, and cut interest rates very quickly is when we're already in recession, which, you know, as we've noted, it, you know, we're not near a recession right now, but the Fed wants to, you know, make these incremental cuts to try and avoid a recession because, you know, some data is bad, some global data is not looking good. But in, as a whole, the U.S., um, the U.S. U.S. economy is holding up, you know, much better than others. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Really appreciate uh, your input and analysis. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist at Bloomberg Intelligence, on the phone from our BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. And Dr. Steve Skanke, thank you, thank you, uh, Chief Economic Advisor at Killpoint, uh, former White House National Security Council staff member based in Washington, D.C., but finding his way to our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on this Wednesday. All right, just to rehash, of course, we're awaiting uh, comments by Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. We'll take you there as soon as he begins speaking. The news, Federal Reserve policymakers lowering their main interest rate for a second time this year while splitting over the need for further easing. And we have seen the equity markets dip lower uh, as a result on that news um, and the Fed being maybe not as uh, indicating that there are a lot more rate uh, cuts to come, if you will, in the future, which the markets have been highly expecting. Them bricks is way too high. You need to cut it. That's a great song, man. It's so relevant. (laughs) Alex Harris is in the house, bond reporter at Bloomberg News, here in our interactive broker studio. Josh Wright was like, what did I miss? What did I miss? Maybe we'll play it on the way out. <laughs> He's chief economist at iSIMS, uh, also in our Bloomberg interactive broker studio. A perfect two individuals to talk to uh, about the Fed rate decision, Jay Powell's press conference. They've been listening closely. I've been watching and listening closely. We did see... Uh, some market reaction, but we've kind of bounced back, certainly on the equity side of things. So let me start with you, Josh. What stood out for you? What stood out for me is how much the Powell Fed continues to get away with this divergence between what they're projecting 
and versus what the market expects. So the market expects lots of rate cuts, more rate cuts this year, and continuing on. And the Fed continues to say, you know what, we're just going to take it step by step. We're not going to provide any forward guidance, any formal forward guidance. And even with our rate projections, we're going to say we don't expect anything to move. And the market apparently just expects that the Fed will deliver um, and that they are right and the, and the Fed is wrong. Is this just like a spoiled child and just wants what it wants? Or is it, you know, that in terms of the market kind of, rea- you know, ignoring some of the economic data points that are out there that do show that things seem to be okay? I think that every time you have a new uh, Fed chair, and although you know Chair Powell has been in office for a little while now, there's always this process of the market getting to know the Fed, yeah. and the Fed getting to know the market, and how they're going to communicate with each other. And it seems like they've worked out an MO. You know, they're, they're okay with this style of communication at this point. So Jay Powell does something and the president tweets because we know that uh, the president did tweet saying Jay Powell and the Fed fail again. No guts, no sense, no vision. A terrible communicator. Not my words, but the president. Um, Alex, come on in on this and what you saw today in terms of the decision, the statement, the press conference. And oh. market reaction. Oh, goodness. Well, you know... The, the reporters exceeded, they went over, you know, usually I, I joke with some people about the number of questions that, you know, reporters will tend to ask about reserves, balance sheet, all the, the toolkit things that, that I love to talk about. And we set that number at two. I mean, today was an easy beat. We were, we were over on that one. Usually we're sellers on that. Um, you know, but it, so it was kind of interesting. The one thing I did wish they would have asked and they missed is not only did they lower the interest on excess reserves rate, which they had done three other times before this, but they also lowered the rate on its overnight reverse repurchase agreement facility, which has sort of acted like a de facto floor here. Right. And so that's what I think a lot of people, at least in the front end now, were confused about. Um, and I talked to Mike Clority at RBC and we just put out kind of what his thoughts on it. And, and he's like, look, you know, if, like if you have funds flowing into that facility, it actually drains reserves from the system. So it just induces more volatility. So this is sort of their way maybe of getting ahead of it. Um, but we don't know. But it, it says to me that maybe they are a little bit more concerned about reserve scarcity than maybe they were before. And I think Powell yeah. said, hey, look, we have six weeks to evaluate this to see like how much of a problem it is. He's like, reserves move. Well, come on, Josh, talk to me a little bit about what happened uh, this week in terms of the overnight um, market uh, and what the Fed had to do. How do you see it? Because we certainly have a lot of folks, including our Alex Harris, you know, and others kind of explaining logically what happened are you concerned about it or how do you see it i think eventually the fed's gonna sort this out but we are in an awkward moment here where the fed has really been wrong-footed they thought they had some sense of where the market was they knew they weren't 100 percent sure but it turns out that we are in that steep part of the curve when you think about econ 101 yeah you know, this is a demand curve and that curve has got a slope it shifts uh, depending on how much money you've got out there, and we are not where we thought we were. That's the big story here. The Fed is surprised that actually they need to manage reserves in a much more dynamic and proactive way than they expected to be doing for you know months. How did they miss it? Well, go ahead, Alex. How did they miss it? Um, I really think that this is, again, a treasury supply story, and yeah. I know Powell had some comments towards the end. And, well, you and know, he said, he goes, we kind of knew this was coming, right? There had been stories that had been written about this and the expectations, yeah. but, but the I, magnitude of it was yeah, a surprise. Yeah, and, you know, and this is the other issue is, is that you know the treasury it's it's really on the treasury side and it's a fiscal problem and i and i think powell sort of hinted at that is that when you have the treasury supply growing by this much it's going to put pressure 
on everything else. The cash balance is getting bigger. That drains reserves. So that, you know, adds to reserve scarcity. So there's all these issues at play here. And and really, at the end of the day, I was talking to someone about this earlier. Like, what we've learned from the volatility in the funding markets this week is that we have too much debt. And mm-hmm. it's only getting bigger. And that's very problematic here. Consumer, and I'm not consumer, commercial. Treasury talking debt. Treasury I'm talking debt. about treasury debt. Got it. And Got it's it. only going up. And this is a problem. So ultimately, what they're going to have to do with everyone calling for, you know, the Fed to start looking at, you know, expanding the balance sheet again and doing what everyone's calling QE light and buying assets again is, you know, it's almost like in a way like an MMT kind of light that, you know, you're using you're using monetary policy, you know, you're, you're going to monetize the debt and essentially, you know, give them more room because now if you're buying treasuries, you're absorbing a lot of that supply that the government keeps bringing into the market. The irony is that we've been so conditioned to think of this as being unprecedented times and it's the new normal that we all want to talk about it as QE light and something that's really dramatically right. different. Right. The reality is that this is going back to the way the Fed ran operations before the financial crisis. They didn't want to go there. They wanted to stick with the new normal. In fact, we are currently at least temporarily revisiting the old normal. So this is kind of how it used to be. Yes. And that's a reminder. Where the Fed has to step in every day and just, you know, try to, you know, shave things very thinly in order to get the rate where they want it. So what? No, no, no. Please ask me Well, help help us out because I feel like this has been an interesting week because of what happened in Saudi Arabia and all of a sudden, you know, we're worried about the energy markets and the potential for a shock uh, globally because of that. And then, of course, you had concerns with the overnight uh, markets. And I do wonder, how do we put all of that together with what's going on in the global economy, the U.S. economy? You know, how much of that that has happened potentially can have some kind of longer inter- uh, longer term impact on the U.S. economy specifically that will cause the Fed to maybe have to be more aggressive or potentially back off at some point. <laughs> well, Sorry, there's a lot there. There, there is a lot like in there. It's been a crazy it's been a long week. week already, and it's only Wednesday. But those are two big macro stories that have consumed a lot of time here at Bloomberg. And I'm wondering, are we spending too much time on it? Is it important uh, in terms of how it might impact, as I said, U.S. economy, global economy, and then ultimately what the Fed has to do? Well, this is the hard and important work of trying to figure out what is going on in real time. But I think so far, the early indications are that these are bumps that we're going to get over. I think we are going to be in a period where people will be more closely attuned of course, to what's going on in oil and what's going on in short-term markets. But the Fed has the tools. I mean, ultimately, what we're looking at right here is it's nothing like 2007, 2008. We're not dealing with concerns about stigma or specific lenders or borrowers not being creditworthy. We're not worried about the collateral in the system. This isn't a question of contagion. This is right back in, ironically, the Fed's sweet spot, which is just the absolute supply of money out there. This is not about, you know, companies or banks not wanting to lend to others, right, because of concerns about risks. Correct. It's just they need the cash. They need the dollars. Correct. And somehow that hasn't been calibrated correctly. Yeah, it's sort of like, I mean, I know we've talked about it. If you think about it as like a giant, like, it's plumbing, you know, and so there's there's a glut of certain cash-like assets, and you know, but it's creating blockages in the system, and that's ultimately what we're dealing okay. with here. And the Fed's just trying to figure out how to keep that moving to avoid situations so like this. Do you feel like are you satisfied with what we got from Jay Powell on what happened this week in the overnight markets? Uh, I think he I think he actually went further. This was the funny thing. Someone just said he exceeded my expectations in address in in addressing it. Um, you know, he provided more information than I think people asked. Even like uh, CNBC, Steve Leisman asked a question and Powell went further to answer it. Yeah. 
But at the end of the day, like everything is going to be dependent on where that Fed funds rate trades and whether or not the Fed can continue to control it. And and frankly, what we're seeing, and, and what a money fund manager said this to me when describing this week as eye-popping, is like, I don't think they realized how much work needs to be done in order to control the Fed funds right now. And I think they've underestimated that. Does and- the Fed still have control of rates, Josh? <laughs> It, need, it, it needs to get the supply right in order to control them. So it, right. it, it has temporary loss control, but say- it has the tools to address them. I actually thought it was interesting, the, his response as well, because it was kind of like he was going back to a very non-Jay Powell kind of playbook. He likes to be the straight shooter, yeah. talking very briefly and concisely. I took that answer as really being, I'm going to drown you with details. And, but he didn't really answer any of the big questions about what's going to happen with a standing repo facility or any kind of longer-term fix, what the operational framework will be. He just said, look, we've got it covered, and here are all the details of the things that we're moving and all the levers. It's one of those, honey, don't worry, I'm going to take care of it. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, again, it's details. going to be a wait-and-see well, thing. All right, we just got a few more minutes, but what about beyond all of this uh, in terms of his expectations or what he talked about in terms of inflation pressures clearly remain muted? He still expects the economy to expand at a moderate rate. He talked about trade tensions, uh, about signs of weakness abroad. Um, Josh, what of note in terms of kind of the normal stuff that we typically talk about when it comes to the Fed? Well, the, the, I, we're still in a period of incredible uncertainty, and we see just how hard that is making it for the Fed to communicate, um, because you've got these uh, two-sided dissents going on, and they can't provide the forward guidance. Um, it, it, but amazingly, the market is still giving them a pass on that. Alex? Man, I I don't know. I mean, again, like Josh said, yeah, I think the market's giving him a pass. But ultimately, I almost feel like after listening to all this, I don't know where to turn. Like, I feel like my head, I'm just on a swivel. There's so much to focus on here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of this is just going to ride on, like, the Fed and what they're able to do, you know, globally. Because, again, everyone's looking to them. I mean, the ECB and the BOJ are negative rates. I'm not looking at them for any sort of guidance here because they're a bit dysfunctional. So the Fed is really the only game in town here and they have a lot on their plate to be worrying about and right. I just don't even know where to look today and trying to once again push the baton back to lawmakers saying fiscal policy can do more than monetary in the long run so a reminder oh. to everybody that we can do just so much although fiscal policy just seems to be exploding the debt and the deficit and Correct. that's a big problem and that we need to get under control all right thank you guys really appreciate your analysis Alex Harris uh, bond reporter at Bloomberg News Josh Wright chief economist at iSIMS uh, both of them in our interactive broker studio I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. Yes, indeed, everyone. Just a few minutes left in today's trading session. Uh, It is time to take a look. Uh, at what's going on in the markets as we drive to the close. Charlie, of course, breaking down the numbers, and we're pretty much on the equity side of the universe uh, at our best levels of the, de- of the session. So slight gains on the S&P and the Dow, a little bit lower still on the NASDAQ. Win Wicker is back with us. He is Chief Investment Officer at Vantage Point Investment Advisors, $29 billion in assets under management based in Washington, D.C. He's been on the road a lot, and he uh, found some time for us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Welcome back. Hi, Carol. How are you? 
are you? I'm doing well. So what's the conversation that you're having most with your clients as uh, you partake on your travels? Well, I think everybody is concerned about what's going on uh, outside the United States. Certainly tariffs down in Washington, D.C., where we're based, uh, takes front and center, uh, I think, in most conversations, right? Yeah, and what do you think about trade? Well, I think everybody, I think, underestimates how long it takes. The more folks I talk uh, on Capitol Hill about this issue, uh, they come back and say, well, you know, the only thing that we have to benchmark this current trade war to is Japan back in the late 80s. And then they remind me it took 15 years and 42 treaties to get a trade agreement put together with them. So that gives you some idea of how complicated some of these things but are. But not apples to apples. I mean, China's not Japan. And I know Japan, if you think about when it was buying all the real estate in the U.S. and we thought it was going to take over the world. But what's interesting is China is realistically an incredible economic might, mm-hmm. you know, with goals of its own. And, you know, our talk that we've been having here is, you know, don't expect any major trade deal that they will try and maybe patch up something just to kind of make everybody happy. But, you know, it's different. It's different. China, you know, has, as I mentioned, its mission, its goals of what it wants to be in this world. And maybe we're not going to get the concessions that everybody's expecting. Well, I think that last time you and I talked, that's what we said. Mm -hmm. You know, we said that uh, we thought the market was too optimistic about getting something done quickly. And that uh, on both sides, they have very uh, uh, opinionated views. And China has a lot longer time frame uh, to deal with that than we probably do. Wayne, do you think we ultimately end up in a world where it's China versus the United States and basically China and its allies in a trading block? And then you've got U.S. and its allies in a trading block. Well, it seems to be lining up that way right now, correct? I mean... Look, Carol, we saw last weekend some of the things that happened with Saudi Arabia. And the first thing that comes to my mind is this is one of the reasons why China is starting to make inroads with Russia, uh, because they could be an alternative trading partner for energy. And uh, so your analogy of could that be one side against the other, I think you're actually starting to see some of these uh, sides lining up. So if that's how it plays out, what does it mean then potentially – you know, for the business environment, the market environment, and what does it mean for investors? Well, for investors, I think it uh, it makes it life a lot more complicated, right? Because you got to determine, you know, how much of the revenues of these multinational companies are going to be uh, impacted by some stringent trading policies that may go into effect. I think that uh, for those that are looking at some of the domestic companies around here, it's going to be life as, uh, as usual. Uh, but for those multinational companies, uh, where we are seeing a lot of growth, uh, whether it's technology mm-hmm. or uh, you know some of the industrials or even somebody like Boeing, for instance, who they're really focusing on China as the next big uh, uh, partner in terms of the number of airplanes they have to build over the next 20 years. All right. right. So if you're having a conversation with an investor, I know this is very simplistic, but I'm just going to go there. So if they say, <laughs> all right, Wayne, that's your outlook, Boeing, should I get out of it? So I think a company like Boeing, if we're going to take that one for an example, I think Boeing is going to be fine over the long run. I I know that there's a lot of issues right now with the uh, 737 MAX, but if you look at their balance sheet, you look at what they are doing on the defense side, which is one of the themes that I think I'm very fond of. I know you're focusing on, yeah. And uh, uh, those contracts uh, really go a long time, and uh, they have a very strong uh, uh, management team in place. So... 
Uh, Boeing, for example, uh, I feel pretty comfortable with over the long run. Well, talk to us a little bit about the defense. I mean, then that is often seen as kind of a safe play because certainly if you've got you know money coming from the government uh, allocated towards it, that's a good thing typically for the defense companies. Mm-hmm. And it's no longer just a Republican play. It seems like both uh, sides of the aisle um, commit money. So you like that area. Yeah. Well, remember the, this last summer, uh, Congress uh, mm-hmm. agreed on a new budget agreement uh, that's going to bolster our defense spending. Now, uh, some of it is being, I think, uh, put into play for the wall that uh, President Trump wants to put together. But if you take the bigger picture into play, uh, that is an area where we are going to see uh, significantly more money going into that. And I think things like last weekend uh, play into the hands of some of these defense uh, contractors as we get more concerned about some of the geopolitical issues that are going on uh, around the world. You also like, and tell me a little bit about energy, because you're thinking <laughs> that the market, the equity markets, that ultimately we could see it expand out to energy, which certainly got a kick uh, this this week because of concerns about supply concerns. I find it kind of ironic. We went from, you know, we have so much supply that all of a sudden, and I understand it was a, a big shock here uh, in terms of what happened to Saudi Arabia, uh, but all of a sudden now we're concerned about supply. Mm-hmm. Well, I think... Some of that was a knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. Uh, And uh, I think that my focus on energy is that uh, it's the most under-owned sector uh, uh, around these days, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, everybody hates energy, so Mm -hmm. it's more of a contrarian play. Uh, But I think for those investors looking for uh, a stream of dividends, uh, they've been playing REITs, they've been playing utilities. Uh, You know, a lot of the big uh, uh, multinational uh, energy companies have been washed out to levels there where you have yields of 4 to 7%. Interesting, yeah, and we've heard a lot of our guests talk about that. If you're kind of unsure with what's going on in the world, um, whether it's global concerns, domestic concerns, uh, look at some of those dividend-paying stocks. Energy, by the way, it's up for the year, up as a whole, about 7%, but it's uh, your second-worst-performing group among those uh, 11 major groups in the S&P 500. Wayne Wicker, nice to have you here. Thanks. All right, Chief Investment Officer, Advantage Point Investment Advisors, $29 billion in assets under management based in Washington, D.C., in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.